It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you. It is good to have you. It encourages us, and we hope we can be an encouragement to you. It's exciting to think that next year that many of us will be reading through the entire Bible together and to think of the great good that will take place in our life and our faith because of that. It's exciting to think that at the end of the year, the Lord is giving us an opportunity to really think about our prayer life. Albert Dürer. He lived in the late 1400s and early 1500s, and he's remembered as one of the greatest artists to ever live. His paintings still are in the great museums around the world, even to this day. The story is told that he was one of the oldest of 18 children. He and his brother both had a great art ability. Their father was a goldsmith, and they both wanted to go to an art academy, but they didn't have the money to send their children to school. Crowded in bed one night, as they always were with 18 children, the two brothers made a pact. They tossed a coin. Whoever won, that brother would go to the art academy. The loser would go down and work in the mines. He would pay and support the older brother or the other brother in his four years of school. After the four years of school, the pact would continue. He would either make his money through art, the one that went to school, and pay for the other brother to go to the art academy. And if he could not make a living in art, he too would go down into the mines, and he would work for four years and allow the other brother to attend the art academy. Albrecht won the toss. He went into the four years of the academy, and quickly everyone there recognized the great ability that he had. Before long, he was a better artist than those that were teaching him how to draw and to paint and wood cuttings and etc. When he came out, the story goes that he came to his home, and there was an honored feast where all the family sat around the table. And he stood up, and he recognized his brother, and he thanked him for supporting him for four years. And then he said, and now, brother, it's your turn. You leave the mines and you go to the art academy and I will support you for four years. For by now, it would be easy for him to support him because he was already known as a great artist. The other brother began saying, no, no, no. And then he held up his hands for his brother to see. In the minds of every one of his fingers at one time or another had been broken, smashed by rocks. In the minds he had taken arthritis in his right hand and could barely hold a glass, much less to paint fine lines on a canvas. The painting that you probably know best by Durer is one that we see on a regular basis. He simply called it the hands. It was the hands of his brother. Notice how they're crooked and frail. We have called them the praying hands. But to him, they were the hands that sent him through school. That reminds me of a significant point. None of us can do what we need to do in life alone. We all need others. We all need support. We all need God. And the reality is prayer is the humble individual that says, I want 
all that I can be and become for the kingdom's sake, but I can't do it alone. I want to serve others, but I can't serve others the way I ought to serve others alone. I must have God's blessings to become what God would want me to become. The text that was so capably read is prefaced by the story of the mountain of transfiguration. Many of you know that story well. You remember it's only Peter, James, and John that were allowed of the 12 apostles. Only those three were allowed to go Jesus into that great time where they followed Jesus up into that mountain and they saw with their own eyes Moses and Elijah. They saw Jesus glow in such a brilliant light that he seemed to be a glowing white. They saw the face of Jesus shine as if it were the sun itself shining. They were leaving what they would probably have referred to in their life as a mountaintop experience. Look how blessed they were. Look how exciting it was to be so close to God and so close to glorification. But they came off of that mountain to discover there in verse 14. Look again there in 17. Matthew, the 17th chapter, verse 14 and 15. And when they'd come to the multitude, a man came to him. Now notice this humble posture. Imagine this man. Please paint this picture, this story in your mind. Jesus is approached by a man that's actually on his knees. The humility in his posture. And notice his words of submission as he looks to Jesus and says, Lord. And notice the desperation as he says, Have mercy on my son. You know, it would touch us if he looked over to a stranger that was a boy and said, Jesus, I've noticed that this young man has needs. Can you help him? That would be touching. But any of us who are parents can feel the pain of a man that looks at his son that had been possessed by this demon in such a way that it would throw him to epileptic fits, no doubt trying to destroy his life because it would throw him into fire and it would throw him into water. And imagine this father approaching Jesus on his knees, calling him Lord, and Luke even adds him saying, Have mercy on my only son. Have you ever noticed that great opportunities to serve oftentimes come in packages of pain? If you and I, by nature, are ones that like to kind of recall from pain, oh, it looks like someone over there might be about to cry. I'm just going to act like I didn't see them and go the other way. Oh, I think my friend is really going through a tough time. I'm going to give them their space and then I'll call them up in a couple of weeks and see if they're okay. Friends, that's not at all what the Lord taught His followers to be. His followers recognize the fact that oftentimes some of the greatest needs of service are going to be packaged in whether it's friends our brothers and sisters in Christ are strangers that they're hurting. And they need someone who invests their life into their pain. But notice the disappointment as he brings out in verse 16 an opportunity that is lost. He says, 
I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Can you imagine what that event must have been like? Can you imagine the disappointment of the disciples? Can you imagine the frustration and the embarrassment? There were nine apostles left behind. And this man brings his son to those nine. And he says, will you cure him? They knew they'd cast out demons in the past. Surely they'd be able to do it again. Can you imagine? Maybe the first apostle tried and to his embarrassment he failed. And they're looking at this father as his face begins to lose hope. And a second one tries. And a third one tries. Can you imagine how maybe a crowd even began to gather around? Look, you, you remember Jesus? You remember the one that's cast out a lot of demons? Yeah, those are his apostles. Isn't that weird? Isn't that strange? Jesus has helped a lot of people like this. I've seen them help people like this. What do you think is happening? All of them are trying to help this boy. And the sad words are, They couldn't cure him. Friends, they wanted to serve and they met an opportunity that was lost. Now this morning, I need to make sure that before I leave here that I understand from Jesus why these men were losing out on this opportunity. Casting out demons dealt in a miraculous age. I'm not suggesting that you and I need to learn this for that very same application. But I am suggesting to you that the principles that we're going to learn this morning remains true even today when we see opportunities to serve and we see people that are hurting. The question is, are we going to be ready or will it be an opportunity lost? Will we be frustrated like these disciples where we want to know, why could we not do what we really thought we were going to be able to do? Notice what is taking place in 17 and 18 as we see an opportunity seized by Jesus. The disciples were losing out on this opportunity, but Jesus takes two opportunities that we read about in 17 and 18. Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Let's pause there for a moment. The first opportunity that Jesus seizes is to teach the apostles a lesson. And maybe any other disciples that are standing around that want to hear. And friend, if I have in my mind the notion that Jesus always dealt with a warm, cuddly hug and that he always worked with the apostles to say, oh, everything's okay. I've not read the scriptures very carefully. Jesus looks at these nine, and I can just imagine the look to these nine is after he's seen a little boy that is in so much pain. A little boy that could have been delivered from this pain perhaps hours ago. And he looks over to the apostles, and it was their fault. Friends, I must let that sink in my mind. Jesus looks at them and says, You unbelievers, you perverse disciples. Those are strong words to describe at least nine of the twelve apostles. And then, 
once he sets the stage to let everyone there know that the lack of faith is never accepted and that the leaving the single following of faith of the Lord is never accepted, then he does what that man so desperately wanted for his son. Look in 18. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. Now imagine if you were that father or if you were the child. Look at 18. And the child was cured from that very hour. The healing took place. The great act of service that this man came to receive much earlier, probably in the day, has now been issued. Someone says, well, of course it has. It's, it's Jesus. He's the Son of God. We learn later in this text that that had nothing to do with the fact of why Jesus could do it versus why these apostles couldn't. Jesus strongly implies here that these apostles should have been able to do it. It wasn't because they were not the Son of God. It was for another reason. So we see him taking advantage of this opportunity and then to the apostles' credit, they take the opportunity to learn from this. I need to note this morning that I'm going to make mistakes. All of us are going to make mistakes. The question is, are we going to learn from our mistakes? Notice as they take the opportunity to learn, as we look in Matthew, the 17th chapter, look in 19 and 20. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Notice they came privately. They'd had enough humility for one day. They did not want to stand in front of all those people that they'd been embarrassed before them probably. They had failed in front of them. They didn't want to stand in front of this father and this son. They didn't want to stand in front of perhaps the crowd that had gathered around. They waited till it was a private setting. And they approached Jesus. And they asked that question that probably all of us have asked in some form or another. Why couldn't we do it? Have you ever wondered why when you've tried to do something that you thought you would succeed at and, and you thought it was a good cause, you thought it would help other people, and you said, why couldn't I do it? Notice his answer deals first with faith in verse 20. Jesus said, because of your unbelief. For surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll move, and nothing will be impossible for you. The first thing, again, he goes back to what he did in the public setting. He goes back in the private setting. In the public setting, he called them unbelievers. And now, again, he says to them, it's because of your unbelief. And I want to remind you again, he's talking to the apostles. He's not saying in this setting, you're atheist. He's saying in this setting, your faith is not what it ought to be. Your faith is not growing. And he compares it here to say that you need the faith of a mustard seed, the kind that can move mountains. Now, we don't have to guess as to what Jesus means when he uses the example of faith like a mustard seed. When you go to Matthew, the 13th chapter, in Matthew, the 13th chapter, we have the idea of the seed being the word of God being planted into different kinds of souls. And that's in the first part of Matthew, the 13th chapter. You remember in verse 23, 
The good soul is actually described as the one who hears the Word of God and understands it and produces fruit. You see, if we're going to think about what does God want us to be in faith, He wants us to be people that's constantly hearing the Word of God, we're understanding what we're studying, and we're willing to take what we understand and put it into production. In other words, to grow in faith. Now, how is this like a mustard seed? In that very same chapter, Matthew, the 13th chapter, go a little deeper and look at 31 and 32. He says, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Now notice this explanation here of the mustard seed in 32, Matthew 13. Which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Lord, what is it that you want us to learn when we take the seed and plant it in the heart and say, I want to hear it, I want to understand it, I want it to produce good things in my life. He says, I want you to understand that what I'm looking for is I'm looking for continual growth. A mustard seed starts so small. As strange as this sounds, what the Lord is concerned with right now is not necessarily how large your faith is right now. What the Lord is most concerned with from here forward is whatever size of faith you have now, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to be willing for that faith to continue to grow throughout your life so that you're constantly becoming more faithful, more dedicated, greater knowledge, and because of your knowledge being put into action, greater production for the Lord? Friends, that's the idea of the mustard seed, constantly bearing fruit. We all won't be equal. Even in that parable, he said some would produce 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. The Lord's not concerned with the comparing business. The Lord is concerned with you as an individual. Is your faith growing? Now, lest we get off track too far, I want to lay one more little piece of groundwork that falls in probably just six days before the text, and then we'll go back and wrap this all up. If you look in Matthew, the 16th chapter, do you remember scanning down beginning at verse 21? Matthew, the 16th chapter and 21, this is where Jesus began to talk very openly with them of the fact that he would go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. And do you remember what Peter's response to this is? Peter took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him saying... Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And Jesus again turned and he cuddled him up real tight in his arms. And he says, Peter, it's going to be okay. Friends, the Lord never nurtures a lack of faith. He never nurtures the fact whenever you and I begin to start thinking physical instead of spiritual. And the Lord turns and says the strongest words to a believer that we have recorded in any other situation. Of all men, he turns to Peter, the great apostle, the man that preached the first sermon there in Acts, the second chapter, we have recorded in the church. And what did he say to him? In verse 23, he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. 
you are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Friends, there's something happening in the life of the apostles at this time that is challenging their continual growth. Jesus is trying to get them to see the spiritual aspects of the kingdom, get them focused to prepare them to be what they need to be, and they just are not growing to that next level. Six days later, probably in an effort to help Peter, James, and John grow, he takes them in the mountain of transfiguration. He comes down from that, and what does he find out? Apostles that ought to be able to do great things for God are no longer able to do great things for God. Embarrassed, they go to Jesus privately. Jesus, why is this happening? Why couldn't we do it? And he looks to church people. He looks to good people. He looks to religious people. He says, I tell you why. It's your unbelief. And then he gives a second reason as we go back to our text of the 17th chapter. Look at verse 21. Moreover, or how, however, Matthew the 17th chapter 21, however, this kind of talking about this kind of demon, this kind of situation, does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Have you ever heard the expression? I know you have. Rome wasn't built in a day. Have you ever seen a Christian go out and do some tremendous act of service for another human being? I want to tell you something. That person that does some tremendous act for another didn't become a Christian that morning. These individuals were probably thinking, we did something wrong at the moment. Maybe we didn't talk to that demon right. Maybe we didn't create the right environment. Maybe there were too many people watching. Maybe there weren't enough people watching. Maybe our technique was wrong. Can you imagine all of the things that must have run through their mind as they saw Jesus succeed and them fail until the time that they can get Jesus privately and say, why could we not do this? And Jesus' answer really had nothing to do with that moment. Every one of us that want to serve God. We want to help others in our service to God. Every deacon that's serving God in a ministry. Let's all listen to this important teaching of Jesus. Great acts of service and great ministries are led by individuals that throughout their life, their faith is growing and their prayer life is strong. Jesus didn't look to anything that happened that day and said, that's why you couldn't do it. Instead, he looked back over the past few months and he says, I've seen your lack of faith. I've seen your lack of prayer. And I've seen your lack of fasting. Fasting helps us focus. Prayer 
says I'm depending wholly upon God. And faith, faith is that growing life through the knowledge of God's Word that convicts us in our paths and our decisions and our choices. Friends, when we talk about serving, we have to talk about prayer. I want to tell you about a wonderful opportunity that you may have noticed on your way in. In Colossians, the third chapter, we read about Epaphras. He was called a servant of God in Colossians 4 and 12, bond servant of Christ. And the way he is remembered for his service is that he labored fervently in prayers always for you. I hope all of us labor in prayers. The many prayer requests that were submitted earlier uh, this, this fall, they are out in the foyer, on each end of the foyer and at the Welcome Center. Will you make sure that before you leave today that you pick up at least one of those sheets? It'll be from one individual. And will you make sure that you serve others and making sure and so serving others that you're faithful in your prayer life? We have a lot of opportunities every day to pray for others and to serve others. But I need to recognize this. I must be faithful and I must be faithful in prayer if I'm ever to be the servant that God would want me to be. The next time you see the praying hands, remember, they were painted in appreciation for what someone had done for them. The truth is, every time we pray, we're acknowledging the fact that it's what we want and what we need God to do for us. If you had to write down right now how often you've prayed this week and when you prayed, how long it was, And then it was flashed on the screen for everybody to see. Would you be ashamed? Now, if you are ashamed, just know that it's not just about your prayer life. You'll never be the servant God's designed for you to be without a strong prayer life. You and I are going to find ourselves just like those apostles saying, Why couldn't we do it? We gave it our best shot. We said the right things. And God's going to be looking down saying, you left me out of your life. Friends, we can do it alone or we can partner with God. And prayer is one of the ways we partner with God. Let's make God our partner this week. Let's grow in faith. Let's be fervent in our prayer. Let's serve each other by praying for each other. Are you a child of God this morning? Have you been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins? If you haven't, if you're a believer, willing to confess before men that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, repenting of sins, won't you be baptized to wash those sins away? Come out of that water as one that wholly depends upon God. Your faith growing, your life indulged in prayer focusing upon God. Maybe along the way you've become a Christian, but your faith hasn't grown. You haven't depended upon God the way you should. What God wants to know this morning from all of us, He wants to know with the measure of faith we have today, 
what are we going to do with it? Are we going to grow? Are we going to sit idle and shrink? God is pleading for us to grow. It's for our good. If you need to repent and come home, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.